Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. The Australian and American troops are gone. The Taliban are back in power. What is life like now for women and girls in Afghanistan? And what can we in the rest of the world do to help? Did the Western presence benefit or disrupt Afghan women's organisations? How do Afghan women and their allies around the world fight for their freedom? This talk is an essential conversation filled with expert knowledge and personal stories. Hosted by Diana Sayed, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Salams, everyone, and good morning. Um, I'll start by first acknowledging the true custodians of the land in which we're all gathered on here today at the Sydney Opera House um, and any First Nations communities joining us here today. I also am visiting um, from Nam, um, where I have the privilege to live and work, and I'm honoured to be chairing this panel this morning. Um, I'd like to recognise that sovereignty has never been ceded and to pay my respects to all elders past and present. I'd also like to pay a special acknowledgement to any people from Afghanistan who may be in the audience today, especially women, um, as these topics are really triggering for all of us um, and we, as we continue to relive our intergenerational and collective trauma, not just from August 15, 2021, but still from the last 40 years of conflict, crisis and catastrophe. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that there are many voices from our community that are absent from the panel discussion here this morning and the diversity and plurality that exists in the Afghan community is exceptional and it is multifaceted. It's also equally important to acknowledge the ongoing violence that we continue to experience here on this, um, in so-called Australia and the systems of oppression designed to hold women back. Um, and that merely existing and resisting every day is a challenge and we live in, as we live in a settler colony. Um, as a Muslim woman myself and settler living on stolen lands, a former refugee, also formerly displaced from my ancestral homes, I want to acknowledge the immense privilege I have to hold this incredible panel of Afghan women. Um, and hopefully we can all continue our advocacy and our work in the space and continue to speak truth to power. I'd also like to say that we all stand on the shoulders of the strong women in our Afghan lineage whose, bloods, whose blood runs deeply through ours and whose history of staunch resilience and survival in the face of so much adversity we pay homage to, um, especially our own mothers, of which some are here tonight. Um, I'd also like to applaud the Sydney Opera House, Chip Rowley, Larissa Berent, um, and the fact that we have an all-Afghan woman panel is, and I'm going to use it, unprecedented um, at this All About Women Festival. <laughs> Um, and I'd also like to thank the co-curator, um, Bibi Mosavi, who is um, here also this morning, and for all of you guys coming out on a Sunday morning. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I also just, as you were all entering the stage um, and the, the auditorium this morning, we had a music, um, we had some music playing on loop, and it's actually a poem by Rumi, and the composition was by Ostad Nainawaz, and it was sung by Mashal Aman, um, and it represents the different eras of Afghanistan's literary and musical history, drawing from Zalash Sarwadi, who we'll hear from in a bit, all of her work about the music um, and the experiences of the Afghan diaspora. 
We understand that the significance of this song really captures the spiritual symbolism in conveying the lament of separation, either from a specific place or from the divine and the struggle towards self, whatever that may be. As for the significance, there's many layered meanings, um, but those who come from Afghanistan, um, the poetry is really an intrinsic part of our um, Persian culture. And songs like these really trigger nostalgia among people from Afghanistan as their memories from a more peaceful time are formed with these songs um, as a soundtrack. And the decades of conflict and displacement affecting millions of people. And it's really poignant at a time like this that we think through change and art and what does that mean for us as women particularly. Um, I will go into the panelists in a bit, um, but speaking of poetry, um, Najiba John, who's on this panel with me today, um, with the support of Orange and Sardine Foundation and also Red Room Poetry, have put together a collection of 24 poems from 24 Afghan female poets still in Afghanistan who weren't able to escape the violence. Um, and the poem, the poems are called Voices in a Cage. It's a selection of series of poems, um, and it's been launched by Red Room Poetry, and we highly encourage everyone to go and have a listen, but we've actually had the honor and the privilege to have two of those poems recorded, um, and the women have um, sent that to us from Afghanistan, and our jobs really are to continue to amplify the voices of those women directly impacted by the violence from Afghanistan. So we'll throw to that video before we start our panel. By the name of peace and justice, by the name of freedom, I have seen it with my own eyes. The exile of freed pomegranates on the weak branch of Kandahari tree, and the smell of orange from the pavement of the Pulakhishti Mosque. to the plains of the host and Paktia, and palmyra slopes, dense of the dead bodies on the road, and flagless columns, flags falling asleep in blood, dream of blue I have seen, I am familiar with escape and condemned to silence, I have been mutilated in galleries, and my threat in Zabulbas. No, no, I should not say that my tongue is damp. Black crows on the house. I have to swallow my tongue and close my eyes in the Maidan Shar. I have to bury alive in cowardly girl living inside me in the fireplace of Ghazni village. I am not afraid the dead, afraid of being rabbit, afraid of giving birth to the terrorist, yet I am afraid to the price of male paradise, that the way to achieve it is my loot. 
Tahir. Good time, everyone. My name is Fatima Ahmadi. I am a high school student and one of the schools in Kabul, and also a, a young poet. Today, as a young poet Afghan, I am proud to read the translate my poem for you from distance. The city began empty as much as it should not have been. I'm going to this street, which I should not. My dream and my father's smiling face, they took those from me, but at least break should not be taken. Hair of a woman with her ice body was seen by the side of the road, and no faith that should not. My beauty bothered me, which should not shake your faith and your hereafter that should not. Is that your absurd thought? But this generation of pains like should not be ignorant. Denying that this nation is not the wrath of my compatriot, I was displaced in our homeland which should not be. Our lover has emigrated, but the most attractive man in Badakhshan should not. I swear on the woes of the women who are not afraid. This is the end of the world, the winter should not. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Najib Ajan, who um, sourced those um, in collaboration with Red Room Poetry. Um, well, we sit here before you today, as I mentioned, um, an all-women panel from those in the diaspora of Afghanistan with feelings of incredible heartbreak and heaviness. While the global solidarity for gender equality is a source of inspiration, we are yet again faced with the ongoing weight of patriarchy in all of our countries and cultures. I can't speak for all, but it, it, is, it is exhausting being a woman in this world today. We speak from the diaspora about our sisters in Afghanistan who have been on the forefront of so much change and have spent their entire lives fighting on multiple fronts, often starting in their very homes. So the last seven months brought the spotlight back on our struggle in the most traumatic and tragic of ways, with the re-emergence of what some have deemed gender apartheid by the Taliban in 2021. What has been more shattering for us has been the global indifference since. Everything that was lost and continues to be lost every day, we don't act. The daily attack on women's dignity and denial of humanity at the hands of the Taliban beggars belief and is quite literally leading to an emboldened state of misogyny that is murdering women every day. We'll get more into that in a bit, but I'm not used to um, being a chair. I'm usually on the panel and I've always got so much to say, so please apologise. I'll do my little introduction, but we will hear from the panellists. <laughs> um, Anyway, solidarity can be a source of hope and great source of strength. Um, I was honoured to be at an International Women's Day event earlier this week, hosted by the um, Ambassador to Australia from Afghanistan, and to hear from Dr. Fahunda Akbari. And she stated that women in Afghanistan have been reduced to shadows. 
feeling like their fight has been wasted and the space that is open for them in 2001 has all but dissipated. And that really stuck with me, like I've been thinking about that on, on loop actually. But those of us in the diaspora need to know that solidarity matters and that the world has not forgotten them, or us. Our voices and continued support matters to those girls in those villages and we are paying tribute to them here this morning. They just want the right to go to school in safety, which is protected under Islamic laws. This isn't the 1990s, but 2022, as women and girls are not allowed, um, they're not going to allow their voices to be forgotten, even if the media has moved on. We have not. Communities in the diaspora can continue to amplify the voices of Afghan women who are continuing their protests out on the streets every day, and our movements for change must be Afghan-led. I just want to say that as we enter, you know, Women's History Month, um, the relationship and ref we're reflecting on the, the movements for resistance and reimagination, and from Kabul to Kiev, solidarity and our struggles matter. So um, I will actually touch a bit on Ukraine. Um, we do want to say that it's been a turning point for a lot of us in the um, diaspora and as well as those in Afghanistan. The, particularly in the last few weeks, we've seen exceptionalised solidarity. And if there are any Palestinians here in the room today, they understand that all too well. And it's been incredibly disappointing, yet unsurprising. If anything, it's come as a bit of a relief um, for me personally. I felt that the thinly held fig leaf facade dissipated when the right refugee became the newest victim of geopolitical warfare. As the world was easing the mask restrictions, the metaphorical mask came off, revealing a system refusing to uphold human rights of those fleeing for safety and dignity, who do not fit our perceived ideas and notions of who are the most deserving. As feminists, we know that transformative social change takes many hands, hearts, and ways of working and knowing. Not all of us will find our home in public demonstrations or celebrations on International Women's Day or any day, but we'll be working for the cessation of violence against women and girls and all peoples around the world nonetheless. So following on from our panel, um, there will be a Q&A from audiences, so please, um, we are using Slido and the hashtag is um, the future of women in Afghanistan, um, and I'll be taking some questions at the end as well. But I just wanted to set the scene, um, as you can tell, come from a long line of poets and literary writers, um, and art is always a form of activism for us. So we're really honoured to be here today, and um, I'll now introduce our guests. Um, so our esteemed panellists, I'll start with you, Zalasht. Um, Zalasht is a researcher, writer, and PhD candidate at Western Uni Sydney University. Her research examines the impact of geopolitical forces and long-distance nationalism on identity construction and belonging amongst Afghanistan's diaspora communities, particularly here in Australia. Her work considers what it means to be from Afghanistan in the context of a homeland, both real and imagined, which has become increasingly out of reach and under threat. Zalash has produced written works for the Southerly Journal, ABC Radio, Sydney Writers Festival, Parramatta Laneways Festival, and Fairfield City Museum and Gallery. We're not just your average, everyday women, I tell you that much. <laughs> Given your research, Zalasht, um, examining the experiences of, women, of people from Afghanistan, can you contextualise for us the discourse that have come to shape our understanding of what has been happening in Afghanistan? Thank you so much, Diana, and uh, welcome everybody. Um, it is it is really important to us for us to contextualise the discourse because it's it's so easy to get lost in the in the stories that we see in the news, the, you know, the harrowing images that we see. Um, as Diana mentioned in August last year, we saw 
young men falling out of planes and people wading through sewerage in their desperate attempt to flee. So it's, it's hard to make sense of all this. And, you know, we, we have, um, you know, in the Western media and political discourses, we've basically, uh, you know, frame Afghanistan as a place of perpetual war, you know, perpetual violence. And, and it's, um, you know, they, it, it makes us uh, lose sight of, of the history of the place and the people. And, and this often makes me, you know, this is the thing that motivates me to think about why do we have this deficit framing? And, and that the unfortunate part of that is that the, the positive aspects do get lost and, um, you know, it, it gets diminished and we forget. Uh, I did want to take this opportunity to pause and, and remember the vivacity and the resilience of Afghan people and that despite um, this deficit framing that, you know, Afghanistan is rich in its history of culture, art, literature, science. Um, you know, there were, there's many array of people and civilizations that have been born out of that place and that it is worthy to celebrate, un, you know, unlike what the current media discourse has been telling us. And so that, uh, you know, despite these images that Afghanistan is a lawless place, uh, you know, we have lost much of its history. It was, in fact, a place where uh, Western... It, 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 Afghanistan had emerged as the first uh, um, Muslim-dominated, or uh, Muslim-majority nation, I should say, of the 20th century. And, you know, they had comprehensive laws that were being developed, many political and social uh, gains that were being made in, in what's been referred to as the golden era in the 1920s and 70s. And so although it was not a perfect place by any means because all these, you know, the progress was not being evenly felt by all groups uh, within the country, but it was a place where people were imagining the future of their nation and there were so many new possibilities emerging. And I think it's really important to hold on to that because that's what, in, in the context of our families, that's, that's the history we remember. That's the people that we are, and not the, not, the, not the people who are desperate to flee from that place. And, in, and so in saying this, we have to realise, uh, you know, the, the way that it is structured. It's not because there's something inherently wrong with Afghans or their culture or their systems. It's actually because they've been, uh, you know, there are structural systems that are in place uh, in, in the global world order that has positioned them in that way. And it does hail back to the, the you know, in terms of the 18th century colonial era of, you know, the racial hierarchies that were established when the new world order was emerging. And, and, and we've been fit in that place, and it's and basically the, the narrative and the policies that have uh, you know that deal with Afghanistan is basically you know it's a place that's justifiable in, in its invasions and bombings. Incredible, thank yeah. you. And I will just unpack a little bit about the you know the, the images that we saw um, around August 2021, and you know that has also continue to haunt us, um, particularly after the 20 years of the intervention, you know, that was justified on the back of 9-11, um, and, you know, with the images of 9-11 obviously still stay with me, of the aeroplanes, but then to see the image, again, of, of people fleeing Kabul on, on that aeroplane, you know, scrambling for their lives, and seeing that those planes and those images from 9-11 and a plane again, it just kind of tale ended the conflict and it was just it was heartbreaking and, and we continue to live with that memory every day um, but I do want to come to you, Najiba, on to, in terms of, of the work that we do and the work that you have done. And when we talk about movements for change and it being Afghan-led and it being Afghan-led by women of Afghanistan, you know, the work that you have done has just been incredible. And it's, it's, it's amazing. You may have seen Najiba earlier this week on Q&A. 
It's incredible. It's great to see that representation. Um, and the diaspora community, we are the ones now, when people talk about, you know, I've never subscribed to that, any notions of voicelessness, because we've always had a voice. We've always been at the forefront and leading movements for change. And it's through our complete erasure that people see us through this reductive lens that we needed to be saved. We don't need you to save us. We need you to get out of the way and make space we can do that ourselves. So, Najiba John, um, you're a founder, executive director of APNOR, which is the Asia-Pacific Network of Refugees and also the founding member of GIRL, Global Independent Refugee Women Leaders. Najiba is also a former refugee from Afghanistan who has graduated from her biomedical science degree. She's the founder of the Global Refugee Network. Najiba has been actively involved in the development of refugee-led networks at both the regional and global level, which focuses on bringing together refugee and migrant-led organizations and refugee changemakers from around the world. We've experiences who have those solutions for more effective, sustainable refugee policy. She's an advocate, a public speaker and researcher, and through all her work she prioritises and amplifies the voices, experiences and aspirations of those most directly impacted. So Najiba John, tell us more about your active involvement in Afghanistan helping women and girls to survive, and tell us about the current context that women are facing on the grounds, the challenges that they're facing. Um, you know, now we're into seven months from the from the Taliban re resurgence. How how has life changed for women and girls there? Mm. I mean, before I actually answer that question, I really want to give a big applaud to the men who are actually in the room. <laughs> I've been really looking around and I see, wow, why there's a big crowd of women <laughs> and most often when I go to forums and places where it's about women I only tend to see women and I say why don't we have the men here but I do see some <laughs> men so I really do thank you for coming <laughs> I mean to go to that question um, Afghanistan really has been um, you know experiencing displacement for almost 40 years and it has been quite horrifying to see that the number of displacement and the number of human sufferings is again on rise um, it is again you know the, the displacement that we're talking about is not new this is in addition to the drought displacement this is in addition to the food insecurity that exists in Afghanistan this is in addition to the COVID which we are also um, experiencing in Australia um, over the past seven months unfortunately I need to say is that you know, um, the number of, you know, screams and cries of Afghans are actually echoing from all corners of my country. Um, we've, we see hospitals, schools and homes being abandoned and being attacked. We've seen thousands of women and girls in particular actually being, you know, brutally killed or publicly beheaded and stoned. We've seen, you know, and I'm sure you all have heard it as well, girls, being school, uh, girls schools being closed. Um, we've, we work with many teachers in Afghanistan right now on the ground who are actually telling us that they have been receiving letters of, you know, um, persecution or threats of death, that if they do, if they do go back to school to teach, um, they're going to be killed. Um, unfortunately, you know, um, things have gone so much worse. And all of these, you know, sounds that I'm trying to explain are actually quite familiar to myself. You know, because my country, Afghanistan, has been in a state of war for decades. And exactly this is the same pain which forced myself and my family to leave Afghanistan and to seek refuge in Australia many years ago. Um, and, and, and with that, I, I, I think what, um, what, we, what we tend to see is that um, uh, we think that, um, I mean, I think Diana just mentioned it earlier, is that media might have stopped 
in bringing pictures and scenes about Afghanistan, because sometimes we tend to move from crisis to crisis. And unfortunately, now we're going into even another crisis, the Ukraine crisis itself. So sometimes this, this, this uh, makes, you know, for us to forget about what happens to the previous and we move to the next without being prepared. And I think we are now in a world where things are changing rapidly. It's not the same anymore, you know. Um, right now, you know, just last week, um, we've had a very um, important dialogue with at least 100 young girls in many different provinces in Afghanistan. Each and every one of them described themselves saying that we no longer care about our rights. We are no longer t talking about progress of our rights. We are really talking about survival. So there are still millions and millions of Afghans who were not evacuated, either by Australia or by US or by Canada or by other countries. And all of them are actually now under the threat. You know, and that's why for me, um, every time I talk about feminist issue, I talk about refugee crisis, because refugee crisis is a feminist issue. Mm -hmm. And if I give you an example, you know, um, a woman who's desperate, you know, to engage in a, in a survival sex to secure a male, you know, protector in her journey. This is a feminist issue. Or, you know, those girls who are marrying the Taliban fighters because they're seeing that as their greatest chance of survival. Or a mother who's sending her child away, you know, unaccompanied, you know, without having, you know, the chance of either seeing him or her alive again. Or a woman who's actually arriving on Australia's shore and unfortunately seeing abuse and meeting detention center and being pregnant and the only crime she's done is seeking refuge. These are all feminist issues. Mm -hmm. These are desperate. This is an outrageous feminist issue. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need to act now. And most often when I get you know, to places like this, I think, would I ever become a feminist today if I actually haven't gone through what I went through as a child back in my country, where I had no access to pens and books, where I had no access to education, where my own you know, childhood was quite dull. And when I came to Australia, I had to face detention. I had to live in limbo and uncertainty for numbers of years. You know, and I had to have my own struggle as a woman. And I always ask, you know, I've had so many questions throughout the International Women's week, people are asking me, you know, why are you a refugee advocate and why are you a feminist? And I say, I might have not become a feminist if I didn't go through what females and what women victims are actually going through. And I leave it there. Incredible. And that just... And can I just say that that personifies the Afghan experience right there? And I don't bandy about the world the word resilience because I actually don't think it captures the extent of what women go through from crisis and conflict countries and the trauma that that elicits. And then to have to come to Australia and be held in detention and your rights under the Refugees Convention just be unequivocally denied. Like, that is not who we are. And I just, like, I think it's really important that we keep pressuring governments, and we'll get to our calls to action in the campaign in a bit. But um, the fact about the, the men in the audience, thank you, but also the men who are at home looking after the kids for the panellists as Definitely. well. <laughs> you know, we've got Mary's husband, Alice's husband, you know, and I'd also like to acknowledge that Najibajan's dad is also here helping the child caring too, and, and he was also in the audience of um, Q&A. Like, I also am a child of a father who really, really emphasised education and feminism, and, um, you know, now I'm a CEO, and um, I've got my members of my board here as well today, but the, the, the fact that women in, in Afghanistan have been leading these, these campaigns for change for decades doesn't really get the acknowledgement that men have been standing right behind us as well. Um, and some people see the Afghan men through that sort of reductive lens of the Taliban or we have an inherent propensity to violence. That is not who we are as well. That's a very reductive, very flattening frame, frame to, you know, 
the politics in this have got so much to say, but um, um, we will get to Miriam, um, who most of you, if not all of you, will know. Um, Miriam Weiser there. She's an award-winning human rights advocate, lawyer, diversity and inclusion practitioner, and contributing author and media commentator. She's just been recently appointed the inaugural CEO of Media Diversity Australia. She founded, just casually, the Islamophobia Register of Australia. She's held multiple board positions, including formerly the co-chair of the organisation that I run now called the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and Our Watch. Miriam has worked as a radio commentator for the ABC and a columnist, columnist for Fairfax Media. With many accolades to her name, I could keep rattling them off. Um, Miriam is renowned as influencing positive change in the workplace and in society more broadly. She's also born in Afghanistan and came here as a refugee in the 90s with her family and has long been a vocal champion for the rights of asylum seekers and refugees. And when Kabul fell last year in August, the first person I called was Miriam. And, you know, we saw an incredible campaign um, being launched by the diaspora community here in Australia. We are no longer like our parents. We are educated, we know organising, we have digital media at our fingertips, and we are no longer going to be silent when we see injustice. So, with an, with an incredible campaign, um, the Action for Afghanistan campaign, um, which was an ad hoc group of people, um, we were trying to capture the sort of the, the multifaceted nature of, of what makes up the diaspora from those from Afghanistan, um, where there was over 100,000 petitions signed, open letters from highly esteemed figures in Australia like Grace Tame, Craig Foster, former ADF war veterans, all got behind this campaign in what was, again, I'm going to use this word, it was unprecedented, um, and we called on the Australian government to increase its humanitarian intake for Afghan refugees. And I want to hear from Miriam now, who will talk a little bit about that campaign and how it all came as uh, one of the leaders. Well, thank you for the introduction. And can I just um, throw that right back at you in the sense that had it not been for you bringing me into that campaign, I would not have been involved in the first place. So thank you. I think um, whilst you're asking the questions, I d can we just give uh, Diana a round of applause? Because <laughs> we we didn't read out her bio, which is ridiculously impressive, and if you're not following her on Twitter, do so. Um, I think, and, and, and I, I will probably cover many points in one, as I always do, I'll go from here to there to there. Um, but I think in terms of that campaign, what I loved about it was how organic it was. And what, what it also helped um, do is give me a sense of hope that there were so many people from the diaspora that I wasn't even familiar with that, you know, got together in a really organic, way, like you said, um, just a campaign, and we pulled in all of our, you know, if one thing uh, that us women are, and the men in our community, is that we're bloody resourceful. Um, so it was just about pulling in um, everything, all the contacts that we had to try and get traction on this issue. In those early days, I can say to you, and Zalash was actually involved in this as well, and the three of us actually commented earlier about in some ways seeing each other again in this way, we spent a lot of of late nights during those days following the fall of Kabul, um, on we spent a lot of late nights on phone calls and Zoom conversations trying to basically do everything we could in those initial few days that passed to try and evacuate people, try and get people on mercy flights. We found ourselves um, having to literally pause our lives. It, and now when I reflect back on that period, it was really traumatic. Um, it was about, you know, like pause your day job. So imagine everything you're currently doing, then you've just got to pause.
doors because, you know, the idea with our identities is you can't switch off your identity. You can't go, right, one minute I'm CEO of this organisation or one minute I'm this and this advocacy component's just going to have to wait. I had to explain to my employer at the time, um, who wasn't as understanding as they should have been given the context, um, that I just needed to do this advocacy. It meant day and night working with the team to try and do all we can. Diana and I were on calls with ministers at times trying to do all that we can. The campaign was about raising awareness about what was happening because we knew that the media spotlight is such that Afghanistan and Kabul will be in the limelight for, you know, maybe several days, you know, two weeks if, <clears throat> if you're very generous. But what we knew is that that would soon uh, fall out of the limelight. And those stories, those narratives, and this is something I've been speaking about International Women's Day in general, that minority community voices do not carry the same weight as other voices. Mm -hmm. um, because we get to a point of compassion fatigue. We're speaking to you about the, uh, the women of Afghanistan right now, but I know there are women across the globe whose stories, whose narratives are as equally as compelling and deserve our attention. Um, so we knew that we had a short time frame to work with, but we wanted to, one, explain that this is not like just any other crisis. You've got to take into account the role Australia has played in Afghanistan. What really um, gets to me is that, like Zalash just said, we are often viewed through a deficit lens. And as Diana said, don't feel sorry for us, right? And if you do, that pity that you might experience, let it come from the perspective of you also recognise, when I say you, I mean all of us, right? Recognising the level of privilege that we have and then sort of saying, how can we level the playing field, so to speak, with that privilege? And so many conversations I had in that, cam that campaign period was a little bit like, what can we do? How can we help? But it's also e examining how the hell did we get in this first place, mm -hmm. in the first place? And how do you avoid that happening again? And part of the, you know, looking at Afghanistan from a deficit lens, looking at the women of Afghanistan from a deficit lens, looking at the men and applying all sorts of assumptions and stereotypes to those individuals. And there is a narrative of Islamophobia that's embedded in a lot of this and in terms of examining perhaps why we are where we are and why does this continue to happen. Yeah. So in that initial um, phase, um, we were, my focus, um, you know, was how can I um, help? I'd spend a lot of my advocacy on refugee and Islamophobia in particular. And suddenly I found that, you know, my home country was at, um, was in the headlines. And so it was me, basically, I was trying to do advocacy, media, etc. And between, I, I think Arif Hossein also absolutely deserves a mention in this yeah. context of the incredible hours and work that he has done behind the scenes and in front of the scenes um, on the advocacy front. And so we mobilised and uh, were, uh, we were hustling, really. We were trying to speak to politicians from all sides. We were trying to um, make sure that it remained in the media spotlight. We, um, you know, there was a whole bunch of things that we did. And the, I suppose the frustrating thing is that slowly, it, it mm. you know, slowly started to creep out of the, mm -hmm. um, the spotlight. And just one other point I want to make is what the issue of Ukraine has done 
is, and again, it wouldn't be um, right if we didn't um, call out some of the, the racist media rhetoric around Ukraine and this idea that uh, refugees from Ukraine are somehow civilised and refugees from Syria and Afghanistan are somehow uncivilised. I know I can't swear right now, but, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's actually deeply hurtful, mm. um, that dehumanising narrative. And it plays, again, it questions how did we get to this point in the, fa in the first place? And so, um, yes, I just want to call that out and, um, yeah. Back to Thank you. you. Sorry, I Thank told you. you I'd say a lot of stuff in one go. We have a lot to say. Okay, <laughs> we've been through it, um, and we continue to go through it. Mm. Um, and I just want to pick up on that point, but I just will just remind the audience that if you could please send in any questions, we'll have a Q&A session in a bit. Um, it's hashtag the future of women in Afghanistan. I don't have any questions today, so we're just going to keep talking. Mm -hmm. um, so just to pick up on that, um, that hurt that we have experienced and that heartbreak, um, it's not just Afghanistan, obviously. We talk about Kiev and Kabul and all of that, you know, that solidarity and that, those movements. But I do want to come back to that, like, how did we get here? Mm. And I'll come back to you, Zalash, as a historian, academic, and someone <laughs> who, you know, is studying this. Um, we often, you know, think back to that liberal war cry following 9-11 that w Afghan women need, needed to be saved. Um, and from the evil perils of brown Muslim women, men as well. You talk about the Islamophobia as well, but brown Muslim men. And how did this narrative serve the intervention? Uh, thanks, Dana. Um, if we uh, jog our memories back to 2001, it was uh, in a matter of weeks, less than one month uh, after the 9-11 attacks that George Bush uh, launched the war on terror. And, um, you know, the, it, there was a coordinated strategy implemented by the government uh, where, the, of course, uh, the media were deployed. Uh, but basically, uh, they uh, pivoted around the narrative that, um, you know, the, the, the fight for, uh, for, you know, fighting terrorism is also a fight for the uh, dignity and justice of women. And so it was basically around um, this, you would have all remembered some of the really iconic Time magazine covers um, that uh, sort of uh, came out in that period as well, uh, basically to mobilise the public support around this war. Um, and as I said, just from some of the comments that I was making earlier, that, you know, it is this, this, this narrative of um, uh, Afghanistan being a, like a uh, lawless place, it's not new. This is happening for hundreds of years. Um, and it's, it's, again, because of that sort of uh, the, the British colonial experience in that place. Um, and so we see it again happening over and over again. And that was utilised in the, the current framing of how um, Afghanistan uh, should be dealt with. Uh, I think what's, what has been interesting around and around that um, strategy was that the United States basically left out the part where they were the ones that actually had funded uh, the Mujahideen, and, uh, and it was from within uh, their ranks that the Taliban had emerged. Um, and the fact that, uh, you know, the United States were funneling billions of dollars into Pakistan, but it was Pakistan uh, who throughout these 20 years has been giving, uh, you know, a, a place of a respite to, to Taliban fighters in terms of being able, they've had a lot of uh, mobility and access into their, to their um, areas. So it's, there's, there's a lot of, I think it's very complicated, the things that we see and understand what's being, you know, image managed for us. But um, there, there's a lot to be said about the war itself. Uh, you know, the secrecy around it, um, the 
fact that there were many gains being made by women in the capital cities, but however, uh, not for the women in the rural remote areas. They were not getting the, um, you know, the funding required to, uh, to provide opportunities for sort of the health and education and employment outcomes in the same way that the, the urbanised women were. And, and there was, a, you know, profound uh, bombing campaigns and uh, really we were promised a smart war with precision technology, but there was thousands and thousands of deaths of people uh, who were, were found to, you know, there was no evidence found with their affiliation with the Taliban. And so there were many widows and children left behind, and all of this is basically, uh, uh, you know, it's disguised, it's, it's clouded, it's shielded. We're told that Americans went in to save the uh, Afghans and the women, but in fact, they, they, they just wreaked uh, havoc. And, you know, so there's, there's again, a lot to be oh, said. Right. I keep trying to keep <laughs> what I say because I want to hear more from the other panelists. So. Yeah, and I just will, you know, talk again about how that inconvenient truth right, where that truth lies in terms of the narratives that are spun in Western liberal media. And, you know, that we even come back to this so-called Australia and being a settler colony here as well, and how in the whole campaign around Afghanistan, and war veterans were even silenced about when they were saying that we have a moral obligation to take in additional refugees from Afghanistan, which we have not committed to to Can date. I just, um, say also, Diane, I like, I think, and in line with what you're saying, that there's been, you know, if we look at the policies in terms of the, um, like I'm going to, I will touch on history, that the way that the Afghan Kamalis were treated in mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Australia when they first arrived, you know, historians have documented that the contributions that they made advanced Australia's economy by 60 years, but still they were ostracised, they were ridiculed, they were humiliated, they were not allowed any legal protections or citizenship rights. Mm -hmm. And so that's that same uh, lineage of thinking uh, has influenced our asylum seeker policy today is what has, you know, enabled elite soldiers to, you know, allegedly commit war crimes in Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, it's, it's all these systems are connected. Yes, 100%, 100%. And to also, um, you know, just t touch on the fact that we, um, the experiences of Afghan Kamalis on stolen lands, you know, I think that's really important to come back to the continuum of violence and the founding of this country on genocidal lands and the fact that, you know, we had a white Australia policy for not, you know, that was only about in the 70s, but to understand that the continuum of violence, whether it's our founding history, whose history we're told or not, the erasure of First Nations communities and the very, very clear violence that was perpetuated on them uh, to Afghanistan today. Right? This is a continuum of violence, and if it's been committed on our soils or elsewhere, our bodies a testament to that violence. And we live that trauma every day. And I think it's really important that we're not erased from the history of this, co of this colony. However, our contributions aside, we stand in solidarity with First Nations communities because we want this so-called settler colony to be better and to do better. Mm. So I just want to come back. I know I'm, I'm, I've, I've got no one to tell me time, but I don't know what is on this thing. I don't know Slido. Um, okay, Slido, we've got some questions. And do follow me on Twitter, by the way, as well. I've got a lot to say on that. Um, but I will come to Najiba and, and um, Miriam as well as campaigners and seasoned advocates to sort of like reimagine and sort of give us a bit of hope because this panel is about the future of Afghan women. We don't want to lament too much about history and, you know, the inconvenient truths of, like, Australia's role and the Brereton inquiry and the allegations of war crimes there. Um, but I do want us to leave here with some sort of sense of, of, of the future and what we can be doing every day in our lives.
to amplify the voices of Afghan-led initiatives, Afghan women specifically, um, and everything that we can do in our lives not to forget them. Um, so, um, I've got no one to tell me time, so I'm just going to keep going. So, um, we'll come to that um, and the call to action in a little bit, but I will just answer these questions. Um, uh, and these are the questions. What can non-Afghan allies do to help advocacy and movement, and what's the future, and what can be done to help them? So, um, that's a question that I'll put both to Mariam and to Najiba John. What can we do? Sure. I mean, um, to be honest, uh, when the, we went through this crisis in Afghanistan, which again, I say it's not something new, it, it has been there for decades, um, and when the COVID started to happen, it was quite um, distressing context to see that all the international actors had to leave Afghanistan. Embassies started to close one by one, you know, and people were rushing into the airports trying to evacuate, you know. So we, I mean, at least, I mean, Miriam shared a little bit around the campaign and what they were doing, but, you know, to be honest, what we saw around the world, you know, across Australia, Europe, US, all the other former Afghan refugees, wherever they were living, they were trying to do something for the people who are left behind. They wanted to make sure that they're doing their part. But what was quite missing is that I think it was the international solidarity. Um, there was so much of politics being involved in relation to who should be evacuated. And again, I had to compare this with the Ukraine situation. Like just a few days ago, we had that, you know, whoever from Ukraine can actually uh, seek refuge without having a passport. You can just enter into any country. I mean, why is it that we're going through such comparison right now today? I mean, I mean, what was so different from our people in Afghanistan who are actually have been dying for decades? Like, you know, how much can people see? And, and Diana and I think Zalash went through the scene of um, plane and people, you know, the desperation of people going into the plane. I mean, what else can happen for the world for our politicians to get a shock, you know? And I always ask myself, why in Australia? I came when I was 11, and now I'm 30, 31, sorry. Um, and, and we're still trying to find out why is it that our policies are not working. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like we're going backwards. You know, I mean, back in the year of 2000, when I came, I was saying, okay, you know, there's not, there's not much awareness about detention centers, about refugee circumstances, and so on. So we really need to build a, those civil conversations and ensure that people are, you know, understanding what's happening. But as we moved on, I started to see that, you know, um, our politicians as well, our government start using different terminology. You know, back in my time, we used to call them detention centers. Now we call them community detention. For God's sake, this is still a form of detention. Mm -hmm. You're still putting people in limbo, mm -hmm. you know? And hundreds, and, and this forum is about women. You know, we've got hundreds of Afghan women asylum seekers right now in Sydney who are actually coming to us as women advocates and telling us, how do I, how do I support my child who's now at the borders of Pakistan? How do I actually find my child who's lost? You know, for a few weeks we were trying to work with Red Cross to find out all the missed orphans from the war, from the crisis, because they went to the airport and they were lost. You know, so, there, so the crisis has left so much, so much, so much that I can't say enough. I feel like, you know, not only that we've forgotten about Afghanistan, we feel like, you know, Afghanistan now has a government. We've already seen the Taliban as a legitimate government, and that worries me more. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I speak to people, you know, they're saying, but you've got a government now. For God's sake, we've got warlords as our government. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the hypocrisy is that the war was started to, you know, for the Taliban to be taken out of power. Mm. And they're the ones that are sitting victorious there, you know? So it's, yeah. it doesn't make sense. And I think this is what discombobulates everyone, that it's, nothing seems to make sense. And you're right about different areas. Like, my family came during uh, the mm. Whitlam 
era. Mm. And it was such a different reception exactly. that they received at, the, at that time. And we have gone backwards, you're right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what basically I want to conclude with is that I, I mean, throughout my living lives in Australia, what I have tend to, you know, really feel with my blood and heart is that Australians are amazing. I mean, when I went to detention center, I had this image as a young girl thinking that, oh my God, you know, um, we're still in a country where the Taliban have just sh uh, have different shapes of faces and eyes and everything, but we're still there with guards around us. But when I came out of that place, I started to, you know, be ashamed of myself, of misjudging what Australia was about. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much of humanity that exists here. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to use that. We need to invest that. You know, we need to invest in humanity. And to invest in humanity, it means that we need to show affection. And to show affection, it's not only about pity, you know? If you're hearing someone's story, what do you do with that story? Mm. You know, Diana talked about resilience. It's so true, you know, we should no longer talk about what happened to people because they became resilient, who they become is important. Mm -hmm. Who Mariam is today, who Diana is today, who Zalush is today. And I think these are the real testimony of what Australia needs to see. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, if I have to give COVID-19 as an example, it was exactly the time where many of our international actors were forcibly asked to stay in their homes and not necessarily help the most needy of people in Afghanistan. And it was again the locals who actually stepped in and they became the first responders to their own crisis. They start creating emergency support they started giving, providing, you know, food emergency right. to women and girls out there, those who didn't have any access to anyone outside, you know, so they really took the situation on their own. So my suggestion as a solution to the future is we need to keep supporting and helping the locals. Yeah. It's so important, you know. I mean, I could be the one with expertise and knowledge here from Australia, but I think, again, no one is much more expertise than the ones that are still in, the, in, in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say the primary solution to to many of these would be resettlement, but how much can we actually give resettlement? Yeah. You know, how much? 40,000 Canada, uh, 3,000 or 15,000 Australia in four years. All of this is not going to be enough. Yeah. So how do we in take investment back in the country? How do we ensure women and girls are not left behind? Those two were female parts that you just saw. I'm sure you weren't able to understand it so well because of the English, but I really do encourage you go to Red Room Poultry website and look what they are actually saying. All the lyrics are there in two languages. Each and every one of them is sharing a story of survival. Mm -hmm. Each and every one of them is sharing a story of solution. They are still having hope, not to the government of Afghanistan, who's a Taliban-led government, to you. Mm. Their hope is to the international community. Yeah. They are still waiting, and that wait means how do we take more budget to them? How do we make, take more aid? And I see Diana is shaking her head. I miss the gym quite. Look, so yeah, I'm getting the signal, back. but we could talk for ages. Yep. But um, Miriam, I, you know, we talk about reflecting on the relationship between re resistance and reimagination, and we are here to actually not lament our grief or our trauma, but to actually think through what are our strategies for mm. implementing change meaningful change for women in Afghanistan today in real time, mm -hmm. because this isn't the 1990s anymore, this is 2022, and we have um, technology and digital apps at our at our fingertips, and I'll talk a bit about that as well before I finish, but I just want to throw to you, Mariam, quickly. What would yeah, you like absolutely. to, what should we be doing? Okay, so I'm going to speak really quickly. We need everyone's help. We need allyship, we need solidarity. You can do that by recognising one, do not uh, look at 
us women or other women of minority groups through a deficit lens. And you can do that by recognising your own levels of privilege. Nobody here chose the circumstances of their birth. Nobody could raise their hand right now and say, yes, I knew exactly the circumstance I was going to be born into. I knew exactly the postcode, the level of wealth my parents were going to have. You didn't. It was the luck of the draw, as it was the luck of the draw sort of for the women of Afghanistan. We did not choose the circumstances of our birth. So when you seek to be an ally, don't do it through a deficit lens. Don't do it through a pity lens. What can you actually do to help? Okay, several things. There is a federal election coming up. Yeah. Hold yeah. your politicians <laughs> to account. Yes. I've sat... Thank you. During my insanely crazy schedule where I've got zero time, I went and sat in the, um, Alex Hawkes' office in Canberra, in Parliament, and said, we did a press conference before and spoke to him, and I said, we should not, um, the women of Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, we should not be begging for our basic human rights. We should not be begging for our humanity. We have an obligation as a country, and when I say we, I'm included in that, because I'm an Australian. I was, you know, I wasn't born here, but I see this as a collective responsibility. We have an obligation, the government has an obligation to increase the humanitarian intake. They have not. They've spent almost seven months, and we can tell you this because we've had personal conversations mm. with some of these ministers. They've been um, yapping on about floors and ceilings. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes, I know there's many, many issues, uh, you know, that Scott Morrison has on his cards. I mean, he's got time to post photos of his cat. Um, check that out <laughs> on Facebook. You know, I know it's been exceptionally busy, right? <laughs> but the people of Afghanistan, we don't have any, um, in terms of the humanitarian intake, um, in terms of uh, people of Afghanistan uh, on temporary visas, all these, all these things, we've not seen traction as soon as the Ukraine crisis happened, and it absolutely deserves the attention it's getting. Mm. But you can see the stark contrast. We've been yelling for, for months and months and months and years and years and years and saying there is inherent Islamophobia and racism in some of the policies. But of course, nobody's going to admit to that because uh, parts of it is unconscious, right? Mm. And unconscious bias, that's a whole different topic. So what you can do is hold your politicians to account. Raise the voices of women and those who don't, ha who, who can't raise their own voices. Out of backlash, out of fear, out of circumstance, out of privilege, you can do that. You can hold them to account. The other thing that I'm involved in, and as are many of not short, Miriam. Is Mahfouba's <laughs> promise. <laughs> Google Mahfouba's promise. We're trying to to, if anyone has property that they're willing to donate in Sydney, uh, they're trying to set up an orphanage. They're also trying to set up a safe house. Some of the orphans that you saw in the media that came to Sydney, um, they need, um, you know, additional resources. If there's anything that you can do tangible like that, please get in contact with us. There's lots of things that you can do. So thank you. Thank you, Mariam. And before we finish... <laughs> Um, just wanting to acknowledge that this is an election year, absolutely, but also that, you know, um, as Afghans and people from Afghanistan, the last, you know, we have been, you know, the victims of war and crisis, and the, we know that overwhelmingly um, women and children bear the burden um, and the brunt of gendered crises, and there's a humanitarian disaster. But we're not alone in this. Um, I sit here with our sisters from Yemen, from Somalia, from Myanmar, um, from Palestine. Um, and I'm probably forgetting a lot of others from South, from Sudan. Um, and I've worked in this space for a number of years. And to me, really, our shared sort of humanity and our dignity is always what is left. 
and we need to be afforded that care and that empathy. And there's so much we can do. Um, it's unconscionable that our government sat with us and saw us and still denied us our humanity. And that, that the people, they're not committing to an additional humanitarian intake for me is what should be decided at the polls. And the fact that there are 8,000 um, people from Afghanistan in Australia right now on temporary protection visas with no pathway to permanent protection, that in and of itself just shows the inhumanity that our policies have now regressed to. And I just, I can't think of how you would live your life in limbo, not knowing that you have a home, that you have safety, and there is no dignity in that. So I urge you all to inform yourselves, to question what you read, question what you watch, and really critique whose views being put forward and being privileged over others. And that critical lens should not be lost. And we are in a great time. There's an election. And um, I will just end in saying that um, there is an app called the ASEEL app, A-S-E-E-L, and we can share this on our Twitter and, and other platforms, as well as the translations from the music that you heard coming in. Um, and that is an app that is trying to circumvent and disrupt these sort of larger humanitarian aid organisations that go in country. And um, we just don't know what, where the aid is being distributed to and there's a large overheads and costs. A SEAL app is in, in real time you are distributing aid, food to families and you can track it on the app. I mean, how incredible is that? And it's Afghan-led um, and I, we've had it vetted and we know that it's a trusted um, app. So, and it's, and it's by young Afghans leading the change because they want and they believe in a brighter future. And so I want to leave you with that. I want to thank Mariam. I want to thank Najiba John. I want to thank John. We say John after the end of every name. It's a point of respect. Um, I didn't even introduce myself. I am Tiana. Um, and please, um, please don't forget about the women in Afghanistan as well. But thank you for coming today. Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream the new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.